Why don't you turn your copies of God's word to Genesis chapter 9. We'll be in verses 9 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and, and raise your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please uh, take it home and read it. Um, it's on us. We'll be looking at Genesis 9, verses 9 through 17 today, but, but primarily what we will be looking at is, is the account of the flood as a whole. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to dive in to God's word and let it teach us today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have allowed us to gather this morning. That you've specifically set aside a day and a time where we get to corporately gather with our brothers and sisters. And so I want to specifically pray for my brothers and sisters who are here today, Father, that, that you would use this time to grow their affections for you that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would give them um, a, a spirit of revelation, and that you would open up the eyes of their hearts to see the beauty of your Son. That those that are suffering might be comforted. Those that have been living in sin would be rebuked but ultimately we would walk away in wonder and awe of your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, I want to now pray for the non-believers that are in here or those that have been showing up to church and, and claim to be a Christian, but their life lives nothing like it. Would you convict them of their sin and would you reveal yourself to them in your word? God, would you bear fruit today through this service? Would you anoint me as I preach? Because I acknowledge that if it is just my words, apart from your spirit, apart from your blessing, then they are empty words. Open up the ears of the hearers today. In your son Jesus' name I pray, amen. Genesis 9, and I'm actually going to start in, in verse 7. Genesis 9, verses 7 through 17 says this, And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with you, every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of this ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off 
by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Genesis 9, 7 through 17. So what I want to briefly do is define what a covenant is, biblically speaking. Last week, I kind of gave a a little picture of what it is, but I want to fully round it out. Because what we're going to be doing from now until Resurrection Sunday is looking at God's specific covenants that he makes with mankind. And so last week, we looked at Genesis 3.15, which is God's very first promise to man that in the midst of rebellion, of man sinning against God, God gives them hope. He gives them a promise that he will send an offspring that would bruise the serpent's head. And so the covenant concept, if if that's a promise, and we're looking at covenants, the covenant concept is a central unifying theme of Scripture that establishes and defines God's relationship to mankind throughout all the ages. And so up until Resurrection Sunday, we will be looking at these unifying themes, the covenants of God. We will be looking at the covenant that God makes with Noah, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, the one he makes with Moses, the one that he makes with David, and the one that he prophesies through Jeremiah. And so what we will be seeing ultimately is one unifying theme to keep this promise in Genesis 3.15. So if if the promise in Genesis 3.15 is the cloth, if that's the, the fabric, then the covenants of God is the thread that stitches mankind back together. And so what we will be doing today in this passage is looking at a little bit more of God's power. It's, it's truly incredible, actually, how God reveals his power in this passage. And he does it distinctly in three ways. And the first way that we will look at it is that man is extremely wicked and corrupt. But God has 
power over sin. We'll see that God has power in his patience, yet his patience will end. And lastly, we'll see that God has power over history and that his plan to bruise the head of the serpent will not be stopped. And we ultimately see this through this first covenant that he makes. So let's look at this first point, that that man is extremely wicked, but God has power over sin. In Genesis 6, we, we get this picture. God doesn't beat around the bush with how wicked man is here. He doesn't, he doesn't water it down to make us feel better. In fact, God says in verse 5 of Genesis 6 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then later in verses 11 and 12, he says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. In a matter of six chapters, what we see going on is that man was spotless. He was blameless. He was innocent in the garden with God. And now his heart is darker than the bottom of a black hole. And as we are about to see we are about to see what God's power over sin looks like in this passage. If we read verse 7 in Genesis 6, we see what this power explicitly looks like. This power over sin looks like this. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. What we are seeing is that God hates evil and sin. We aren't seeing a God that twists and makes a clock and lets it go, hoping that man would kind of find its way back to him. We are seeing a God who is very interactive with his creatures. We are seeing a God who is very intentional in knowing the thoughts and hearts of his creation. However, just when we may think that mankind is doomed... We get to meet a man. We get to meet the man named Noah. And Genesis 6, 8, and 9 gives us a little information on who this man was. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
You see, Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah, Noah walked with God. And if we're thinking about this promise in Genesis 3.15 that, that there would be an offspring of the woman and he would bruise the head of the serpent, we might come to this realization, maybe this is the one who's going to do it. Maybe this is the man who will bruise the head of the serpent. As we see this unfold, we get this picture that God is, is about to blot out the earth. Yet this one man has found favor in his eyes. Is this the one? We'll find that out in a little bit. See, God has power over sin. And right here, what this passage tells us God's power over sin looks like is blotting out everything. Everything that is in his path, he is about to destroy. And so we need to ask the question right here, why now? Why now is God deciding to blot out his creation? Which brings us to our second point, that God has patience, uh, he has power in his patience, yet his patience will come to an end. Up to this point in history, we have seen nothing but God's patience time and time again. God had told Adam and Eve, don't take from this tree. And they do, but what do we see? We see his patience with them. The very next chapter, chapter 4 of Genesis, we see Cain kill his brother Abel. And we also see God being patient. Then in chapter 5, Nearly the same story, but, but there's this man named Lamech who kills a guy for wounding him. And again, God displays his patience. Instead of completely wiping them out right away, we see God's patience show up. It would be so easy to come to this passage and just kind of gloss over this whole section. It would be easy to, to shy away. Either totally ignoring this passage or just letting people think that God is just this, this mean, old, grumpy man that's, that's in the clouds. It didn't go his way, so he's, he's wiping everything out. That's faulty thinking. And that would be a disservice to us to not look at this. It's, it's wrong. God has, up to this point, been nothing but patient with his creation. And what we see here 
What we see in this account of the flood is that although God is patient, his patience will come to an end. It will come to an end. And when it comes to an end, we see in chapter 7, and ate the most horrifying scene. Total eradication of mankind except for one man and his family. When God's patience runs out, we see his right and just judgment rain down in a horrifying Scene. If you were to go to Google right now and type in Noah's Ark and look up the images, most likely you'd probably get this, this pretty picture scene of Noah and his family sitting at the front of a boat with maybe a, an elephant trunk out of one of the windows, uh, some birds flying around, maybe a giraffe's neck sticking out, all pointing and looking at this rainbow in the sky that's um, a really uh, sunny day. However, if you were to take your phone and Noah was sitting next to you and you were to show him that picture, he would probably grimace a little bit and say that it looked nothing like that. People were living their everyday lives, drinking, eating, being merry with one another, giving each other in marriage, is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. Most likely they were passing by Noah, thinking or even saying, what a fool, why is he, he building this ark? That is, until there was no one left to think, what a fool you are, Noah. The waters rose and rose and rose until everything outside of the ark was dead. Everything, all animals, moms, dads, children, all of it. And so I need to ask a serious question right now. Are you flirting with God's patience? Do you keep saying, when I get home, when I get home, then, then I'll trust in God. So tomorrow, I'll repent of my sin. Next week, I'll talk to my pastor next week. You know, I just really need to clean up my life. And then I'll come to Jesus. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 23, 
verses 37 through 39, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Like an hourglass with sand trickling down, so is the patience of God. It will end. And like in the days of Noah, when it does, it will be too late. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that looks like for you. That could look like the Son of Man coming back. That could look like having a heart attack. That could look like leaving here and being struck by a car. All I know is that the patience of God will come to an end. And so right now, there are three different ways that you might be responding. You could be super cold. You could be super angry at me right now. Who are you to talk about the judgment of God? We don't talk about that. God's just all love, love, and love. Or you could be sitting here, and this is the one that I'm most scared about, indifferent. Now I show up to church. I'm a pretty good person. I'm getting by in this life. You could be indifferent to this. Not hot or cold, but directly on the fence. Or you could be responding in fear and trembling, which I would say is probably the most appropriate since we're told at the beginning of wisdom or that fear is the beginning of wisdom and insight. It's the beginning, not the end. Because there is hope. There's good news that although God's patience will end, there still is good news. And we see this good news in this next point. God has power over history. And his plan to bruise the serpent's head will not be stopped. After the flood went down and the boat was on dry land and Noah was out, God gives his covenant to him. In chapter 9, verse 1, we see him say, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then, and then looking a little later down in verse 7 of chapter 9, he nearly says the same exact thing. Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Does this make you think of anything? Do you remember what the first blessing that God gave Adam and Eve were? Be fruitful, Adam and Eve, and multiply and fill the earth. Have dominion over it. And so it's almost as if God is, is restarting here. 
making a new Eden, telling Noah and his family to multiply, to be fruitful. And so what we need to do is is we need to go back to that question. Could this be the one? Could this be the one? God totally eradicated all evil, it seems like. Is this the one to bruise the serpent's head? We hear this, this echo. However, if we keep reading, we see something very, very tragic. Noah makes a a vineyard. He ends up getting drunk, passing out naked in his tent. And so we're faced here with a dilemma. And we need to ask ourselves, Is it that God failed in starting over? Did God fail in starting over? Or does he have something better planned? Here's your theological word for the week. Immutable. It means that God doesn't change. God hasn't made one mistake throughout history. He doesn't, he doesn't mess up. And although it may seem like it, a perfect and holy and just God cannot mess up because if that was the case, then how could he be God? And I think we get a little insight onto what's going on here in the end of chapter 8. It's not that God messed up, it's that he has something better planned for mankind. He's going to reveal his glory in a very unique and very powerful way. In verses 20 and 22 in chapter 8 of Genesis, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings On the altar. And when the Lord smelled, when the Lord smelled this pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains a sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. There is one man, a far greater man than Noah. His name is Jesus, who lived a perfect and sinless life, died for our sins, being sacrificed as a perfect sacrifice, rising three days later so that if you repent, 
and put your faith in this sacrifice, no longer is the judgment of God on you because all God smells is the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice of his son. This is the hope that is offered to all of us who have or are flirting with the patience of God. And while yet we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you stay with me for just a a little longer, I'd like to, to look at the implications that this passage has for our lives. And so one way that I want to look at this first is, well, why, why was Noah spared? Why was Noah spared? Well, well as I said earlier, Noah walked with God. He was, he was a, a righteous man. He was blameless in his sight. So does that mean that all Noah did was just good works to earn the favor of God while everyone else was just out acting a fool? No. Hebrews 11 sheds some light for us here. It's because of Noah's faith that he was righteous. God has power over sin. And in this passage, it looks like destruction, but God also has power over sin to forgive sinners. And if God has had power in your life to forgive you of your sins, I need to ask, do you walk with God? Do you walk with them? When God told Noah to build the ark, what did Noah do? He built the ark. When God told Noah, get on the ark, what did Noah do? He got on the ark. When God told Noah to get off the ark, Noah got off the ark. Noah was a man who heard God speak and obeyed. And brothers and sisters, lest you think, well, I don't hear God booming down and speaking to me, so I don't need to obey, God does speak to us today through his word. And when God speaks, if we are walking with him, we obey. Are you picking up your copy of the word of God and obeying when God speaks? Noah was a man who listened. And so we should be people who listen and walk with God also. The second point that I'd like to look at is that God's patience will end. We know this to be sure and true because the Bible has told us so. That although God says here, I will not send another flood like this, we do know that there will be another judgment 
What will it take for us to be urgently telling people to get on the ark? What will it take for us to be pointing people to the only person that saves us from a righteous and just judgment? If we believe this in the heart of our hearts, then we should pursue every opportunity to warn people in love about this coming judgment. We cannot be Christians and yet not share this love that we know of. That's actually the most hateful thing that we could possibly do. And lastly, what I'd like to look at is how Noah suffered. Not just Noah, but Noah and his family. You know, I don't, I don't know if, if you're like me or not, but sometimes when I read scripture, I far too often can take the emotion out of it. And what we see here is Noah's family, although they were spared, also suffered. Can you think of the trauma that they must have been through? The people, the the man or the men that Noah was trading with throughout his life. The families that they would bring food to or that they would go over and, and help them build their houses. All of them were gone Noah and his family were picked up in a flood and and most likely dropped off thousands of miles away from where they once were, only to have to start completely over again. Noah and his family suffered. And so what God did is he gave them hope. He put a bow in the sky so that just in case that they doubt, he would go back on his covenant. They could look up and remember, I'm not going to send another flood like this. I mean, think about it. Could you imagine the very next rainstorm that happened, the fear and trembling that Noah and his family must have felt? because of what they had experienced? Brothers and sisters, so it is with us in our times of suffering and doubt. I don't know what you're suffering through and I don't know right now if you're doubting the goodness of God. But just like During that time, God put a sign of the bow in the sky for Noah and his family to look at. So he has put a sign in front of our eyes and it is the son who was raised up on a cross so that when we are suffering, when we are doubting his goodness, we are able to look up at that cross and know 
and know that I am no longer underneath his judgment. Instead, I am promised glory. I am an heir. I am his child. The amazing thing about this first covenant is that if God had not made this covenant, he would be perfectly just and right to send a flood throughout history, continually. Because it's not that they were more sinful and evil than us. No, they, they get off the boat and, and it's one of the first thing that God says is, is from youth they have evil, we have evil intentions. It's that what we get to see here is a glimpse of God's power and patience with mankind. God, out of his kindness, establishes this covenant with all mankind, with all his creation. And what he will do, as we will see, is continually show off the power he can display. Show off the glory of himself. And so what we see in this first covenant is this. God's mercy and patience towards mankind and creation. That he would never send a flood like this again. That he would be patient, setting up history for something far greater. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time and your word. Thank you that we were able to look at your servant Noah. Would we please not take this lightly? God, we, we know that the coming judgment is real. And we know that your patience will end, but we also know that you have made a way for sinners to flee from that judgment. God, we understand that suffering is real. We understand that we will suffer. And we don't like it though. So would you comfort us in the midst of our suffering? Would you reveal your glory to us in the midst of our suffering so that we can glorify you more. We can praise and worship you more. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Before you leave, I'd like to give a benediction from Romans 5, uh, verses 8 through 11, which say this, if I can see it. But God shows his love for us And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Community church, we have just looked at the word of God. So now I am charging you to know this, to go living your life in accordance to what God taught us this morning. You are dismissed. Have a fantastic week.